Welcome to this podcast entitled Healthy Futures for the Language Sciences. I'm Andrew Nevins, Professor of Language Sciences at University College London. Following on a highly important line of questions that began for me in the last chapter of my 2022 book entitled When Minoritized Languages Change Linguistic Theory, I've taken the plunge into the world of new formats for academic discussions and am here with my second podcast episode. Today, we meet two dynamic individuals who have obtained a PhD in linguistics but are not currently working in linguistics departments. Instead, they are leveraging their technical know-how with real-world applications to education, inclusivity, and clinical and speech therapy. Our first guest, Maria Garafa, is in the School of Health Sciences at the University of East Anglia. And our second guest, Anne Charity Hudley, is Professor of Education at Stanford University. Maria, perhaps we can start with you describing the resonances that you see between work on minoritized languages from the theoretical side and practical experiences with education and literacy. Uh, One experience I had in education was once uh, I decided to develop a reading assessment on one of these minoritized languages. I realized that the majority of reading assessment for bilingual speaker in which English is one of the two languages are always adaptation from English to any other language. And and it happened through my daughter that we are a bilingual family. I was reading this test and it was all about buccaneers and pirates doing stuff. And I was saying, oh my God, this will be extremely complex for my daughter, but she is a good reader and she loves book. What will be the impact of this on her? So I end up making a partnership with a Gaelic school. And I ask them, Gaelic in Scotland. Now we are doing the same for Sami across the Scandinavian area um, and in Ireland. So I told them, how do you measure reading? And they say, we just adapt what is there in English to the, uh, the second language. And I say, oh my God, but it's all different. The, the, the length of the words are different. The morphology is completely different. They are, it would be quite difficult for them to, to just to map one language into the other. And we develop an assessment all in the native language. And we develop the assessment completely from scratch, from Gaelic. Then we adapt it to English. So we did it the reverse process. And it was extremely powerful. We discovered quite a lot about phonological awareness, how actually having these two languages was crucial for them to learn reading. And it gets very, and that's where the technical acumen has to be there. So when I'm working on issues of reading, I'm thinking about this in terms of large quantity data sets and correlations and designing models here in the U.S. around the same topic that you're you're talking about but I'm thinking, how am I moving the policy? <laughs> so to do that, I've got to have hundreds and thousands of examples and samples calibrated across different standardized assessments that are actively used in schools. And I've got to go in there and show those school districts using linguistic skills, right, down to the individual biological modeling, down to the mismatching with, with correlation analysis, with regression analysis, that this test is not suitable. So The technical skill to move the policy has got to have the linguistics behind it or they won't even think about changing it. And the policymakers have been trying 
and they have those government and social skills, right? To kind of know everyone and network and kind of think about that. But if the evidence isn't there on the ground, that's the challenge that we're still facing. So we need people to, <laughs> to have the technical aspect because when they get in there to make the argument, when people say, well, look at this test, these students that are good readers, they're good readers. You still get, I still get that every day. So the linguistics is necessary then, you know, even as a technical component for policy. It's a critical technical component because if you don't have it, you aren't able to move the statistical modeling for the standardized assessment. You can't just go in there and say like, oh, it's wrong. <laughs> like, you know, or it's not representative of the students. You have to have a, a completely technical quantitative argument. Just to, to give you another example to, to move on a similar uh, but different uh, area. Uh, if you have a clinical interview with a patient in the hospital, they will profile you, your age, your social background, your family history. But it's not the case that they, they ask you about your language. It's it's not even in a speech and language therapy profile. They will ask you about your language. My first experience in a very prestigious university in Boston was to profile the language of um, what was described to me as an American English speaker. She had aphasia and uh, the speech was fantastic from a linguistic point of view. There were all these omissions and all strange inflections going here and there and uh, omission of subjects. So I was like, amazing. I can work on this case forever. Then I start having a conversation with this lady out of the uh, profiling in clinical interview. And she mentioned, oh, you know, I am from Jamaica. I just moved to Boston last year because my daughter can help me after the stroke. I will not add anything more, you know? No need to. I'll pick right up from you. So I'm a keynote speaker at the Clinical Aphasiology Conference this spring. I don't study aphasia, but the, the, the knowledge is so limited of varieties that they asked me to come in to make a priority for the clinicians understanding varieties. Like that's where we are with exactly what you said in real space and time in the U.S. at least. They're like, I, you know, I have students who study aphasia and who are professors and study aphasia who've written with me on the topic, which is why they in interviewed me. But their whole point is they don't even have their research clinicians able to address this case. There is some nice research now. Um, I, I have in mind one paper um, that is comparing uh, the speech product production differences in English and Italian uh, with speakers of non-fluent primary progressive aphasia. The primary progressive aphasia is more or less when you start, instead of having a stroke and, you know, the event, it's immediate on your brain. It's when you start more or less to have a language that goes on a weaker and weaker and go, you know, worse. There's a, is a sort of the gener degenerative disorder, no? And you end up with aphasia. So yeah. apparently the clinical phenotype of this disorder can be completely different in, in, in different native languages, native language. For us linguists, this is quite obvious in a way, you know? Okay, the speech production of an English patient with primary progressive aphasia will maybe match this matrix of complexity of this kind of description and the speech production 
of the primary progressive aphasia in Italian will have another profile. I can tell you that this is not there. This is, uh, this is not there at the moment. What I'm hearing you say is that the effects of aphasia can manifest themselves very differently depending on one's native language, and that for this reason, a more sophisticated understanding of cross-linguistic structures and variation and detailed understanding of varieties and dialects is crucial for work in aphasia and speech therapy. There are really few studies, a couple of them, that are comparing and saying you cannot assign a primary progressive aphasia you know, to, not, to an English patient just because they have this profile or to an Italian patient the other way around just because they have this profile. It has to be language specific. This intuition of being language specific can change the phenotype. That means the description, the description of a disorder. And, and this is very hard. I think doctors are very interested in this. But the amount of research that you have to be, it's more or less like an individual base sort of research in which you have to match and, you know, and consider the language profile of each patient and understand. But you need to have this matrix of complexity. You need to know what you are expecting from that speaker, no? as, a, as a proficient speaker of that language. And I argue, Andrew, it's the type of linguistic knowledge that you are calling for that won't actually just provide the information, but transform how we do it because it is such case by case. So, you know, we can run the stats modeling on it all day and say, okay, add this profile, add this profile. But at a certain point, understanding how the language works, we're going to say, well, this is not going to be a feasible clinical solution. And so that's one of the things that McKenzie, my former student, who's a professor of, of, um, speech and hearing and has a focus on aphasia. And I have been talking about, we need a different linguistic model of how this is done Mm -hmm. clinically. So it calls the model into question, not just like providing things to feed the model. That's a very linguistic way of thinking about it, which many of my colleagues who are coming from ed or psychology don't even bring to the conversation. Like they're so fixed on the model. (laughs) And I'm like, hey, wait, maybe we need a different model. Maybe this linguistic input is telling us we need a different way of going about this. So these examples we've just mentioned, in a way, let's say the arguments that I try to make for how linguistic diversity will improve linguistic theory from a purely theoretical point of view, well, we've now discussed a couple of examples where they also improve clinical diagnoses, education, policy, and assessment. And you've been developing a three-stage model for addressing inclusion challenges, where the first stage involves the existing inclusion models of STEM programs, such as those at U.S. funding agencies like the NSF or the NIH. And the second involves true partnerships with neighboring disciplines, such as racial or ethnic or gender studies programs, that is more interdisciplinary models. Now, the third stage is one that specifically emphasizes social justice and what you've called the intellectual values of scholars from underrepresented groups who are in the field of the language sciences. This involves looking at certain uncomfortable realities and truths about the nature of our field and academia in the present day, right? So I I completely agree. Everything we've said today, rightly so, because it's how how we move through school and how we get jobs and stuff, is we have to respond to the existing models 
And a lot of those them are those science-based models. And I'm not against that. I'm saying that that's just a part of the model. <laughs> um, and it's one we all have to contend with. And so what I'm saying is to change those models is going to have to go beyond those models of scientific inquiry that are kind of the mainstay in the academy right now. And we're going to have to do partnership models. And this is partnership models within the academy, neighboring disciplines that don't follow NSF and NIH type models. So everything that um, Maria and I were saying, so NSF and NIH would fund the reading, would fund the clinical work, right? So my push on the second part of the model is we got to think about things they don't fund. <laughs> and what are things that we learn from those type of approaches of neighboring disciplines, racial and ethnic and gender studies programs, and the things that they're valuing to bring into conversation with the STEM models that have kind of undergirded linguistics and linguistic science in particular so far. And I think it's super important for us to think about this in our teaching, but this came out of our research. And then the last one is really then the, the justice and value models of the scholars. The, and that could be the community. And when I say scholars, I mean the community members. So I think about, you know, when, you, when I went through your book, if you take this model, like what are the questions that people in those communities have about their own language and the way that language plays in their lives? That's what that's where my students come to class, right? They they're kind of interested in the stuff that we tell them is intro linguistics. If you come from, you know, I don't know, what did I learn from O'Dowd or some intro to intro to linguistics book? But if you ask me like how much of that intro linguistics class I took, most of my students are interested in, it'd be like one half of one chapter. But their questions about language are just phenomenally rich. And that's why the issue this morning is we've been ignoring those questions. And so it would be amazing, like if you think about this as a specific thought process, like as they read your text, what questions would they have? That's how I think about, you know, basically all of my research at this point. And the biggest one is what do I do with it? <laughs> what do I do with this? How does it inform my how does it inform my day? <laughs> Can you give a couple of examples of the questions you think that we've been ignoring too much? Yes. We have no conversation or very little conversation with other large groups of scholars who study language. And the two that I'm focusing on are the whole massive field of communications, <laughs> broadly conceived, which at many major universities has just been running parallel to linguistics in weird space in major universities. And I would also argue the other ones that are super important are Applied linguistics, ed linguistics, bilingual, multilingual, that continuum, and then speech and hearing. Like, why are those so separate is one of the big questions. To me, if you were coming through, for example, like one of the reasons I took the job at Santa Barbara is because we had majors within that program where students had to take classes in those other departments. It fundamentally alters your thinking when the student comes and claims a major in linguistics but has a requirement to take courses in communication and then speech and hearing. Hmm. Like it, and think about it, like all, most of the people that we've been in conversation with, they haven't ever thought of a frame of mandate there. I'd certainly agree that many people in linguistics departments simply don't rub shoulders enough with other groups working with language, with the language sciences, with communication departments, with speech and hearing education. In fact, where real synergy and interdisciplinary exchanges could be mutually beneficial both for the academics involved and for society. The second one that then comes out of that, but then is also like the more just specific question is always skipping first to 
benefits to the community? What is the benefit of the research to the particular community as a driving research question? That's what you get out of the racial value model. So I'm gonna frame my inquiry around that question rather than having it be in the NSF model that's like broadening participation benefits, right? You do the whole study, then you kind of say what it's might be related to. And like, you might read a grant and at the end they'll be like, I'm gonna do all this technical linguistic work and then maybe one day it'll be beneficial to, you know, maybe a kid with autism or, you know, and so like, it's such an afterthought to the whole design. And if you think about most communities, they have immediate needs. So you're saying rather than making raw science and then maybe thinking about its possible applications and who it may benefit, we could start by asking who can we benefit and then targeting the science towards that. Maybe that way we could be more efficient in solving real problems. In fact, this resonates with a lot from the discussion in episode one of this series, to which I will happily direct any interested listeners. The way that we talked about it in my lab is this pandemic is killing Black people all the time. We have to address that immediate need in a way right now that's making this awkward (laughs) to have things that we're focusing on given our high resources and our position the privilege and power here at Stanford if we're not addressing basic community needs. So that's just the reality of where we are. Like we can't even be in a place where we ignore that. I mean, I would argue ever, but especially in this particular moment in time. Uh, yeah, I, I really love this model and thanks for sharing. I think here the, the, there, are, there are two sides of the coins. One is the training because we are all uh, academics here. So what kind of training do you think in linguistics we should, uh, you know, push a little bit b- beyond the knowledge, beyond the knowledge of the structure, beyond the knowledge of the mechanism of language? And I love your idea of which is the benefit of the community you t- that, that goes, if you want, on the opposite side of the spectrum, and in, in aphasia, there is, uh, there is one example that I truly love. It's a, it's a speech and language therapist who was particularly effective uh, in Italy. Her name is Anna Basso. She, she was perfectly fluent in the linguistic jargon, but she was always uh, presenting conversations, what kind of conversation she was having with that specific uh, person with aphasia was really crucial for her, the fact that you cannot describe the properties of a language if it's out of its context, if it's out of at least a conversation model. So, Maria, would you say that conversation is, as a topic, an important object of inquiry for the language sciences and its applications? Through a conversation, you can actually have all the hooks that you need to prompt the language in a person who technically cannot use the language for, for, you know, a neurological event or for, for any kind of disorder he has. And she was pushing this model. And, and I remember the, the, audience, the audience was not 100% convinced about this very sociolinguistic, a, a bit, uh, you know, difficult to capture, difficult to put in a, in a grid, in, in a model. But then she present what was happening day by day through conversation. And day by day was a measure, was a, 
a measure, something measurable for people who wants to measure. <laughs> so, and this was a fantastic example on how acting in a very naturalistic way, just prompting conversation with a person who starts with zero word, global aphasia, day by day, but following the topics that this person coming from that community want to prompt, following a, the, this kind of naturalistic approach, the, the person was keen to produce more words, was keen to reduce the stressful impact of all the, um, uh, you know, the, the surrounding around language. And it, she was, I think, one of the best putting the communication and the pragmatic again into the agenda. We have to say, okay, the purpose of a conversation is actually quite important. The community I'm speaking to is actually it matters quite a lot on the language style that I am adopting. How can I map it from a linguistic point of view? This is my contribution. And, and there are a lot of people in the field, we know, you first, Andrew, can actually have fantastic, fantastic um, cues for people to understand that the communicator was functional, was effective in getting there, not just because he got his cup of tea, <laughs> but because he did it in a very appropriate way and, you know, predicted by the knowledge of his language, predicted by a mechanism, an operation that is actually working well. We need both. We need both levels. That, that's for me, it's the challenge on being in a speech and language therapy department now. I did it on purpose. I really want to work on pragmatics. I really want to work on communication, but with my own tools. So real, when you switch that department, it's coming at you every day, right? When the students come in and they don't see any, they've taken intro to speech and hearing, intro to calm, intro to ling, they bring all the questions together. Like they don't even have to be a grad student and they'll be like, what are we doing here? <laughs> they'll just be, you know, it'll be the first frame because how it's framed is so different. And that language and context is, is completely, at least for my lab, is the, is the, is the dominant theme, you know, thinking about how do these principles play out in context? Um, and how, the, how is language not just acquired, but how is it socialized? On the other hand, I would say that discourse and what is called discourse representation is now at the forefront of research in semantics and pragmatics, and even in the syntax-semantics interface with respect to an increasing number of phenomena. Now, some of this work has not funneled back into the classic textbooks that are used with adjacent fields yet, however. Now, shifting gears ever so slightly, can I ask you both about one of the potential, I would say, maybe from my reading, barriers to maintaining careers in linguistics, or even entering into careers in linguistics for many people is, you know, some structural aspects of the model of what is valued in linguistics. You know, the format of academic outputs being publications and what are some potential, you know, changes or transformations that you think maybe could be structural, could be made structurally such that it would make more people want to stay in linguistics, would make the contributions of linguistics healthier for the future. I mean, we are, we talked about this before, the fact that maybe, you know, in a certain sense, linguistics departments are going to have to change. Otherwise, their days are somewhat numbered. And so how could linguistics modify a notion of what counts as a valid academic output, you know, besides an article or something in a way that might lead us to a more, you know, robust and inclusive future. You can actually start in articles is one of the things. Like, I think we can think of other ways and that's important. 
But I think the conversations like we're having right now, the more that these become the norm in the scholarly venues, the other things will flow from it, right? So I was so excited when you asked me to do this because I've been doing them with scholars in applied linguistics right now as well. And Nelson Flores and I are turning in and we're finishing um, a the, the, like the closing summary for the next annual review of applied linguistics. And we're just, just arguing for a reunified linguistics. So we know historically these things split and we just lay it out and it's like literally almost done that intellectually it makes sense no more. <laughs> So we can do these in existing venues. Applied linguistics is one of the highest, you know, cited areas of linguistics, meaning just in terms of readers and readership. And so it's thinking strategically about how do we do that before we even have to get to other things counting. I, I just was thinking about that so much, just in terms of we threw up our own series, you know, from our NSF grant on Build and Broaden, where we just started mashing up different linguists. <laughs> we, we could do that and have a public one. We were getting people showing up by the hundreds. Yes, these mashups, these different formats for conversation, these different pairings and dialogues, I believe that these can be transformational. So the first one was me, Eris Clemens, who comes out of the Spanish modern language, Hispanic linguistics tradition, and Daniel Villarreal, who comes out of computational. The second one was Amalita Singh, who comes out of socio, but more really a discourse model, and Norma Mendoza-Denton, who's coming from linguistic anthropology. And then the third one on Monday was Rachel Weisler, who's coming out of Michigan neurolinguistic socio mashup mash with Meredith Taminga coming out of mashing up community-based linguistics with experimental methods. And it was just completely well attended, all of them. People were just like, what is going on right now? So I argue right now, like, we just have the power to do it. You might as well just do it. <laughs> like, I don't think you have to, like, call, like, we can definitely think of other ways to make things count. I think that's super important. Um, but I think calling the question gets us there quicker. <laughs> Just be like, this is what we're about to do today. Um, and then looking at existing materials. Um, so that's documenting the agent languages has really worked on this, but other disciplines have really looked at this question of what counts as scholarly product. And I think at the end of the day, the write-up is what gets you there, right? So like I do a lot of programming. I do a lot of school intervention. I do a lot of pedagogy work. I do a lot of work on, um, you know, preparing undergraduates and graduates, but I still, at the end of the day, just, you have to write it up to get it out. And then at the end of the day, the writing has counted. So that, I mean, that's why I'm not so cynical of the model because I'm like, okay, if you're going to make this product, just write a summary of the product, like journals will publish it. <laughs> that's how we just run best paper in language. And part of the reason we just did it is because we wanted to show, like we could break the space. Does that make sense? Like if you say 20 years ago, a paper is showing pedagogical models for inclusion and would probably have not even gotten published in language, language versus like winning best paper. But best believe when it did that and we did it and it won, it counts the same even here at Stanford. How could they not count it? Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, this paper for our listeners is called Attracting Black Students to Linguistics Through a Black-Centered Introduction to Linguistics Courses. And it's written by Kendra Calhoun and Charity Hudley, Mary Bucoltz, Jasmine Exford, and Brittany Johnson, and was published in Language, March 2021. And of course, I want to join in congratulating you on the award for Best Paper of the Year in the Linguistic Society of America's flagship journal on this extremely central topic to our field. This is very powerful, Hand. This, yeah, I think I think it goes in two trajectories if we want. One is the interdisciplinarity that Han is describing in a way. So it's it's more about does my knowledge works if I 
you know, I am in a conversation with someone from another discipline, can I communicate and actually can my colleague benefit from what my discovery and, 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 and I can from her discovery. So I think this kind of uh, uh, making uh, what do we do with our knowledge very visible no, in conversations such as in which students can actually have the joy and the benefit of watching this and say, wow, this is very exciting. Going back to the question of how we can change the model of output, and as you say, one is the extreme case, which we talked about in some of the publications about working with First Nations communities in Canada, is that, well, you know, it might be as important as a linguist to write a theoretical paper about a community as it is to make a coloring book in that language. And then people will say, well, wait a minute, are you going to give people tenure for making coloring books? You know, what's going to happen? But then, as you say, well, you can write a paper about making a coloring book. And you can make the paper, I'm not saying you have to, but you can make it as connected to the literature, technical, lit like there's so many ways to go with the coloring book article like that you talked about the other day. I was thinking about it after. I was like, you know, someone could definitely be dismissive. I can go in the whole history of anime and manga and how it's used in schools these days and the banning of mouse, the text. And what does that mean right now in the United States that that's been banned in schools and how that relates to these issues of supremacy and colonization. Or I could just write a logistic paper that's just like, we made this coloring book and here's all the stuff that was that came into consideration. And then a lot of the work I do would then go out and get people to use the coloring book and then talk about their using of it. There you go. And so that can be like we have a paper coming on American speeches like that. So we made a website. Right. And then um, we in, we had people use the website in their teaching, in their planning to talk with educators. And so a lot of the papers are about the user experience rather than just making the coloring book. So, I mean, I could take that coloring book and write about three, four papers is what I'm saying. Yeah. And no one would be like, oh, this paper is about a coloring book. They'd be like, this paper is about the history of, you know kinetic learning in educational spaces or this paper is about you know making materials that you that are used in communities where literacy models are different or this paper is about how people feel about learning i want to ask how else could we bring these multiple voices together within the academic setting look you know something that is very specific and very into my field can have a massive impact if I discuss it in a proper way, you know, with the right question across uh, different fields. But then there is the involvement of the community. And this is, I think, is something that we usually neglect in academia quite a lot. What do they need? So there are a lot of grants, you know, now <laughs> people will consider this less scientific if you want, but there are grants for networking quite a lot with charities, with communities, but even with individuals at case-based level. And, and I think for learning together properly, we should try to involve them as much as we can, you know, in partnership with them. So conversation partners with people with aphasia invited to take part of it and with students of linguistic, I do think that is something super, super simple to do. I think it should be compulsory in any linguistic degree. The shock of a person at year one having to pass an exam through a five minutes conversation with someone who has a specific kind of aphasia, you will understand like this why language is a biological object. You will understand if, oh, wow. I got it. 
it's it's not just a cultural you know uh, cooperation between people there is something going on here something like that will be very very easy i think it's just a matter of not being lazy <laughs> sometimes trying to involve the community of speakers and try to have the right questions between us academics in different disciplines is the is the beginning i think of the story a language is the perfect object to do it and that's what all those conversations were doing and so in the article i'm writing now i'm tracing it through those different disciplinary lenses so we decided we're going to take one morphological object and one lexical object and work it around the disciplines <laughs> just so people can see and reading about We've never even like read anything like that. And it would be so powerful if you read it earlier. Like, what does it mean to have this kind of morphological thinking <laughs> across people who would say they're more generative, morphologically functional based, morphological speech and hearing, morphological, how does morphology impact reading? What do we, how do we think about this in comm studies? That's what we're doing with that crew. So it's pretty exciting because it's a, a different way of thinking about what we're doing. Um, and I think it can only be done in partnership. You have to have a crew. You can't, like, no one no one person will possess all of that knowledge. <laughs> Not the way we're trained, at least. Yeah, that just made me think of one last question that I think I should have started with. But, well, now you have it. Is Could each of you say why you sort of ended up or decided not to be in linguistics departments proper? I think the thing for me is that the way that ling linguistics goes in the academy right now, people are super focused on everything centered around is it linguistics <laughs> and even the people who kind of resist it or even write against it still have that as a precept and what i found being in english and in education my work can much more freely flow to answer questions that i need to answer without having that as a bounding factor <laughs> at all i think for me first is a genuine interest in linguistics and I do think if you have a genuine interest in linguistics, you don't go in a linguistic department, but you want other people to love linguistics as much as you love. So for me, the, the point is really that I will love, you know, people from, uh, from pharmacy, from medicine, from, from uh, physics, from biology to say, wow, but language is so interesting. So I, I'm, I'm really think that if, you know, anything I can contribute with my in my own field will have a little a little chamber, you know, a little audience. What I'm saying is like I really like big audience, and and I had a so uh, theoretical training in syntax, especially. You know, I I managed to be at the right time in the right place. I think Andrew, as you did, you know, when you were a PhD student. So I, I more or less grew up in, a, in an environment in Siena where they were developing the cartographic approach. So every day it was a massive amount of data coming from different languages, not many languages. Now I can understand it. <laughs> the diversity was. But and then I thought, oh, my God, that, that's a very powerful, a super powerful theoretical approach. I want to see if this approach works with other, you know, outside the field. So I really want to go out of my field and see, does it work? Does it sound good if I speak about that with a doctor? You know, when we look at, uh, you know, the output of a, of a child uh, uh, with learning disability. So this is more like a genuine, really, truly genuine, interesting language. You know, I think opened me to go out of it. And then I have, I have um, 
a kind of a target for my, I don't know, for my future. Uh, and it's trying to reach this audience as much as I can. I don't want to go to the next uh, generative grammar approach linguistics. That, that I want to be able to read it. I want, of course, to be able to understand where the theory is going, you know, what are the main findings. But I, I, I really want to go out of it and, and speak about it to other people as much as I can. If I can wish my next step, I really would like to have a chair in medical humanities. It's the next area. And it's so, you know, we have clamped on some of the speech and hearing and some of the education. The medical humanities is wide open. So the latest research I'm doing is in medical humanities. And this space is huge. I want to take this opportunity to thank you for being involved in these conversations, which I know will have a resonance with a wide range of scholars and audiences who need to hear these realities, these questions, and these opportunities for change. And I'll invite you all to watch this space for future episodes examining directions to envision healthy futures for the language sciences.